0: Welcome to My Millennial Money, Glenn James here. We've got a great episode today. We put this together very fast. And before we get into it, I just want to thank Sunsuper, our show partner. Thank you so much for uh, being a part of what we're doing, Sunsuper. We really value your support. Now, if you want to go to the Sunsuper website, there's a link at the top. Uh, particularly at this time with the coronavirus and investment markets. Uh, Brian Parker, their chief economist who we've had on the show recently, uh, they've got a whole heap of information on what they're doing uh, for their members in relation to coronavirus and also what they're doing uh, with their broader portfolios. And it's really interesting to read uh, what a... A quality super fund is doing at the moment. For more information on Sun Super, you can go to Sunsuper.com.au forward slash M3. Thank you, Sun Super, for getting behind my millennial money. Now, just while I've got you, a little bit of housekeeping. The Facebook group is going off. We've got hundreds of people joining every week, so everybody is welcome. But just remember it's a tough time. So before you click enter on the a reply or a comment or anything like that. Remember, number one, text is so one-dimensional. So, and I've even said something where it's intended to be a joke, but someone's taken it as the wrong way. So, I'm not above this either. We've just got to remember, is it helpful? Is it kind? Is it polite? All that stuff. If it's none of that, don't click enter. Don't press send, okay? So, everybody is welcome in the Facebook group and also our Instagram. Now, John isn't with us for this episode, however, Shell from My Millennial Career, the other podcast that we do, she actually tracked down Andrew. He's really switched on as an employment lawyer. So, I thought I'd jump on, grab Shell, grab Andrew. He's in Melbourne, Shell's in Newcastle. Whether you're an employee or you employ people, you're actually going to get a lot out of this episode. I learned so much. Okay, so I couldn't get Asher to quickly do a voiceover for this episode because it all came together at the last minute, but I put it out to the M3 community to do the voiceover and I've selected seven people at random. Thank you to Will, Anna, Anya, Zach, Joe, Jade and Beck. Here's your intro, guys. Enjoy.
2: Andrew Brooks is an experienced employment lawyer and advisor to fast growth businesses and clients of Law Squared.
3: Andrew is committed to helping employers and their management team deal with daily
0: staff issues and complex legal problems
2: as their rise during the employment life cycle. Hiring, managing and firing.
0: Andrew was a finalist in the Lawyer's Weekly 30 Under 30 Awards for 2018.
4: Today we welcome him to My Millennial Money to chat with Glenn and Shell
0: to answer your employment questions. So Andrew, if I could jump in and start, um, once in a hundred year... Pandemic has hit the world. No one's getting around this. Uh, The government's scrambling. I'd assume uh, the Fair Work Commission has been scrambling, and I know there was an announcement um, with changing a few of the uh, agreements, if you would call them, or some of the contract laws. But what type of, I guess, pandemic leave provisions has Fair Work has the Fair Work Commission announced, and what's the kind of uh, latest goss on the street?
1: Yeah, sure. So um, it's a really good question. Um, and the answer kind of keeps changing probably every 24 hours. So hopefully by the time that this podcast kind of comes out, this answer still makes sense. Um, but pretty much uh, the new legislation came in the past 48 hours, which pretty much gave superpowers to certain businesses to kind of roll out um, sort of unpaid leave, forced annual leave, um, kind of like when governments do kind of state of emergency and then they can do whatever they want. Um, They've done that maybe like 10%. So, there are some businesses now that are able to do um, a lot of things they're not normally allowed to do around pandemic leave. Um, So, that's kind of what we're seeing, I guess, from the last 24 hours. Um, Maybe if we go back a week, um, there are a bunch of changes to modern awards, which meant that um, a lot of Australian workers um, are now able to kind of access a lot of leave differently. That there's new kind of flexibility provisions. Um, so it has kind of been this kind of stage process to really enable businesses to deal with COVID um, a lot easier um, and in maybe a more efficient way. Um, because, as you say, it's a uh, something that's only come around, you know, every 100 years and our legal system really wasn't prepared for it. So, you know, three weeks ago, we had nothing. Two weeks ago, we had something. A week ago, we had a bit and now we've got even more. Um, So, yeah, it's definitely a watch this space sort of sector. Um, And all I can really recommend to people, business owners and employees, is to just continually reading the news because um, every 24 hours, it seems to update.
0: Yeah. And for those listening on the date of the release of this episode, which is the 14th of April 2020, we've actually recorded this on April the 9th, on the Thursday night before Good Friday. So I don't think there'll be too many announcements over the long weekend. So we might have the best shot of getting the most fresh information uh, that's out there at the moment.
4: And so, Andrew, on that, like I guess, forcing of lead, we've had a couple of listeners send in questions about my employer is forcing me to take annual leave or unpaid leave. What are some of the legal um, factors or considerations around that? Are those things allowed and how does that all work?
1: Yeah, sure. So, forcing leave, um, forcing annual leave specifically has always been a big kind of no-no in the employment law world kind of to go back to basics. So, it's... Um, really meant to be something that employees can request to take. Employers then have to um, accept it if, unless they've got reasonable business grounds. But lately, lately, that has kind of changed for some businesses. So, I would always go in with the assumption as a small business owner or a business that you can't force someone to take annual leave. Um, and then I'd be with that assumption, kind of looking at some of the more recent stuff to see that there are particular businesses now that can um, force annual leave. And that's really the changes in the last 24 hours. If you're eligible for what they call JobKeeper, which is a new kind of government scheme to subsidize businesses um, then there is the ability to force annual leave Um, but there's still a requirement to leave a couple weeks in their bank so to speak so yeah I definitely recommend people to look into it if you're a business owner if you're an employee that's been directed my assumption is always kind of no it's not allowed but recently you know there's this depend that's been put in there.
0: Correct me if I'm wrong, but employers and employees should be able to have a conversation to work together for the best outcome. Uh, I'm not saying break the law on either party, but if someone agrees to a condition that isn't basically Going to land them in jail, well, let's just work with it.
1: Yeah, for sure. And that's kind of always my first kind of approach. So, obviously, it's good to know kind of like what the law is to know what you can and can't do as a business. Um, But at the end of the day, we're dealing with relationships between people, um, especially smaller businesses that don't have many employees. And it has to be seen as a longer term play. So, we always tell our clients at the moment that don't just think of this as a survival for one week period, you know. COVID will pass, your business will then need to re-engage, you don't want to lose too many good people. So really just try to be super transparent, try to go through the process in terms of this is what I'm thinking, these are my kind of cash flow issues, um, how can we kind of work together to make sure that we kind of keep everyone together. Uh, I generally advise against businesses taking a real cold calculated approach, um, especially when you know they will need to re-engage, they will need to build back their work force. Um, You don't want to lose kind of all the goodwill that you've probably built over the last five, ten years by um, kind of being not compassionate or not empathetic at this exact moment. Times of chaos is generally the times you can build really good relationships, but it's also the time that you can kind of burn all your bridges.
4: So, obviously, there's heaps happening in this space, Andrew, and you've, you've probably had lots of different questions coming through in your world at Law Squared at the moment. Can you talk to me about how does a stand down work? And so, a stand down—we're having lots of organisations stand people down without pay. Can you just unpack that for me? What are the legal factors around that?
1: Yeah, sure. And it's a—it's an amazing question because we're getting that every single day. And I would say maybe ninety percent of businesses don't understand kind of the entire issue. Um, and we're getting a lot of people kind of do it poorly and what we're going to see is that in a few weeks' time, they're going to get a lot of underpayment claims from people that are alleging that they stood them down without pay unlawfully. Um, so it is something that businesses should really be kind of fully across before they kind of jump ahead with it. Basically, it's it's an employer or a business kind of just directing an employee to stay home, not work, not perform any duties, and they won't get paid for that. The difficulty and kind of where we see a lot of questions pop up is we uh, businesses can only actually do that in very limited circumstances. So you really, and what we're trying to tell clients, our business clients at the moment, is you really need a... Um, a government direction to shut down your business or a large part of it. So the biggest example is, you know, Qantas. Um, the government banned overseas travel. The next day, they um, stood down 20,000 people without pay. Um, another one is the AFL. When the government came in and banned the league, they then stood down 80% of their staff the next day. And you know, we're seeing all this time we've got some cinema clients where they were um, forced to close all of their cinemas and then they stood down all of their employees without pay. But our advice is always for those businesses: you need to wait until you have that government direction. Um, and then once you do have that government direction, for sure, you've got the ability to immediately go to your staff and stand them down without pay. But it that can only last and they'll only be kind of lawful as long as that government direction is in place. So, if things change, then um, that could change.
0: Just a question on that, Andrew. So, the word stand down, is that you're fired?
1: No. So, it's definitely not fired. It's a leave without pay? Uh, yeah. The, the only thing, and this is going to where it gets kind of like employment law geeky, um, stand down without pay is slightly different to unpaid leave. So, those are kind of two different things that you could be on. Um, Stand down without pay just means that you've kind of just been told to go home and you won't get paid, but you're still on the books, you're still employed.
0: Your leave and long service accrues still in the background while you're on stand down?
1: Yeah, exactly. And that's the main, um, that's the most important distinction is that when you're on stand down without pay, your annual leave, your personal carers leave, um, your long service leave, all of that continues to accrue because you're still employed. That's kind of how they say it. Unpaid leave is slightly different. So, unpaid leave is when effectively you don't get those leave accruals. um, But generally, you would have to agree to go on unpaid leave where stand down without pay, if they have the ability to do that as an employer, then they can just do that without your agreement. So, it is just important. Um, We are seeing a lot of employees get asked to go on unpaid leave um, and we would just kind of, you know, not to put the employee hat on, but I think it's good for both the employer and the employee to know that leave accrues differently depending on what term we use.
0: So, as an employee listening, if your employer is trying to say, I want you to take unpaid leave because there is no work and we've got no revenue, It's good for the employer because they don't have to accrue benefits in the background. But if they do a stand down, your benefits still accrue in the background.
1: Yeah, exactly. And I would say maybe 99% of Australia doesn't understand that distinction um, because, again, it's very like employment law geeky and who cares, you know, which word you use.
0: Yeah, and that's why I wanted to camp here and just really be clear that if you're feeling bullied by your employer to do something... I think it, well, at least to my next question. So, fair call that if you work at an RSL or uh, a gym, for example, and the government says, no, you can't operate, sure, stand down provisions, that's all cool. What if you're working for a small business that basically just has economic downturn and the government has said, you can stay open and that's cute, but no point because we don't have any customers or any revenue. Where does that stand from a stand down, or firing, or leave without pay?
1: Yeah, sure, and that's a that's normally the point that people get confused. So they think there isn't a government direction. So say you're a retail store, um, in say. Different states around Australia, you can still stay open. Um, you might have, say, restrictions on how many people can be in the store, um, but otherwise, you could still function. These businesses are struggling because so many of their customers aren't out and buying things. Or you work for a company that only, you know, works with maybe the AFL or Qantas, and so your major client has now gone under or you know ceases to operate as efficiently. That isn't a reason to stand down someone without pay. So, and this is where it gets really important. If it's just a downturning business that isn't uh, an avenue for you then to stand down people without pay, you need to look at all of your other options. And there are a bunch of other options, but it just, our strong recommendation is it's not stand down without pay.
0: If unless the government have stopped your business.
1: Yeah, exactly. Um, Or such a large uh, part of your business that you can then stand down people. So, for example, like the, and again, sorry to listeners not loving the AFL, but um, the AFL is a good A good uh, example because, you know, they didn't stand down 100% of their employees. They stood down 80% because the main part of their business uh, was directed to closes in the actual league, the, you know, playing and traveling interstate. So, they were still able to keep on 20% that could still be usefully employed. But the 80% that couldn't be usefully employed because so much of their business had been shut down, um, they could be lawfully stood down without pay. Right.
0: Which means they're actually not fired and when the economy picks back up they can go back to work?
1: Yeah, exactly. So, um, they're never fired during a stand-down without pay. Um, that's always kind of like a misconception that the two are related. Um, they're definitely not. Um, the only way an employee will get terminated or lose their employment is by the employer proactively terminating them. So, they need to get a notice of termination letter, they need to get something that says you're terminated, or they need to resign. So, unless those two things have really happened, there's not going to be no termination.
0: So, Andrew, do you think like because my impression – Has been, you know, the media might say 8,000 flight attendants got um, lost their job. Now, under the hood, did Virgin, for example, just do stand down?
1: So, my understanding of Virgin is that they were stand downs, they weren't terminations. Um, One of the reasons that these businesses aren't terminating is because one, you can't just terminate for the mere fact you've got a downturn. You know, you could look to make them redundant if you want to, but you can't just terminate for that reason. Um, And the other one is they probably don't want to pay out all of their termination entitlements. So, obviously, if you've got accrued annual leave, if you've got long service leave accrued, you don't want to have to pay out all of that to 8,000 staff within a seven-day period. So, that's why most businesses, if they're standing down without pay, they're doing it so that they can avoid that initial financial hit. And then when business kind of resumes or the directions go away, then they can bring them back on or eventually make a call to then let them go. But there definitely needs to be that proactive step in there.
0: Yeah. And I think that's very clear because if you have lost your job, quote unquote, if you're a flight attendant with Tiger Air, Virgin or Qantas, you've still got your job, you're just not getting paid. But the silver lining is your annual leave is still accruing in the background. Your sick days are still accruing in the background and your long service leave is still accruing in the background. The only thing you're probably not covered for is workers' comp, but you can't claim because you're not at work anyway.
1: Obviously, you don't get your like major source of income for that period, which is obviously... The, the detriment um, but it is still better to be on stand down without pay than being say let go during your probationary period where you probably you know you're not entitled to that much um, or being on unpaid leave which again you're not kind of accruing those things. So yeah it's still it's better than those alternatives but you know I, I just don't want to stand here and say that it's um an amazing spot to be. I'm sure there are a lot of people kind of struggling with that now.
4: Yeah absolutely and I think Andrew, just a couple of questions around the timing with stand downs. So, are employers required to give a notice period before that happens or can it come into effect immediately?
1: Um, so, under the, the, the main piece of legislation that people can actually stand down pay without pay, there's no kind of notice provision. So, if you've got, um, as a was giving the examples before with the government stand downs, they happened on say a Monday then Tuesday they stood down everyone because it's all about whether you can usefully employ them and as soon as the government direction came in, there was just no way for them to be usefully employed. So, you you didn't need that notice. Some of the superpowers I was speaking about before that came in the past 24 hours for certain businesses, there are some notice provisions around say directing people to take annual leave, doing kind of shutdown periods. But again, that's only for certain businesses. Um, Generally speaking, stand down without pay, there's no notice. Yeah. And I think it's
0: a big hit for the business owners because it's probably better to stand down if you... So, I'm talking to the people out there who are business owners. Uh, it's probably better that you stand down your staff temporarily because if you've got to pay people out, making them redundant, I mean, that's a big hit to your balance sheet. And also, when this thing ends, you're recruiting costs and getting things happen. But if you've got staff that are stood down when the green light happens, all right, everyone come back to work and we just hit the ground running.
1: I think that's exactly right. And that's why um, the government's been so strong in these job keeper payments because they're wanting to incentivize businesses to do that, to stand down people without pay or to keep them on their books, even on reduced hours um, or wages, to try to make sure that people are still employed so that, yeah, absolutely. When business kind of resumes when COVID-19 isn't as much of a a detriment on the economy, then people don't need to, you know, hire again or look for jobs. They're already in employment. It just makes it slightly, um, you know, in some respects, it makes it hard for some employees that probably have to wait a bit until they potentially get JobKeeper payments. And at the moment, they've been stood down without pay. So yeah, I can definitely say kind of from both perspectives, but I do think it's a good thing that people can still be engaged by a company, even though technically right now, they might not be kind of usefully employed.
4: It's such a complex area that we're in in terms of it almost feels like a bit of a free for all right now. Like, I don't know if that's your vibe, Andrew or Glenn, in terms of what's happening. It's like. Anything goes, which is so different to the Australian employment law framework where it's very rigid and structured. And yes, I'm not sure what your take on that is, Andrew.
1: Definitely. So there's panic on both sides that we're seeing. Everyone's kind of running around with their hair on fire. Um, And I think it's because things are changing. So when things change so frequently, people kind of get overwhelmed very quickly because they don't understand what's going on. They're probably looking at their balance sheet that might not have, you know, might have a significant drop in revenue than what it did before. So they're kind of, you know, reasonably panicking around kind of what their business will look like in a month time, two months time. And so, kind of from my experience in the employment law space, when anyone's panicking, whether that's the business or the employee, you see some really weird things. So, like I had a client ask me if he could just withhold wages for four months and not pay them. And then uh, when things pick up, they could then backdate that. And I have to be like, no, that's not lawful. Yeah, questions around, you know, can I just direct them to work for my other business just for this small period? And then, you know, it's like, no, well, that's like in a different state. Like, that's crazy. What are you thinking? So, yeah, definitely, there's a lot of kind of um, blunt conversations because uh, whenever there's uncertainty or whenever people are panicking, that's kind of where we get the the silly question.
0: I, I've got a question if like around this redundancy thing and communicating with your employer, if you're in a position that has been stood down and you were thinking about a career or job change anyway, as an employee, do you think it would be wise to approach your employer and say, hey... I know things are tough for you, would you consider a redundancy and then maybe triggering a redundancy and getting your leave paid out and maybe if you've got, I don't know, about accrual of long service leave or the law around that or any redundancy pay. But do you think this time, because I think once in a 100-year medical and financial event, a big reset button has been pressed. So, why not use the reset in your own life? to be like, well, I hated that job anyway as a, a flight attendant or whatever, a cabin crew chief or whatever the senior role is. I've been there for 10 years. I've got accrued stuff. Why not ask for a redundancy, get some cash? If like, The companies might not have the cash to give but... Is that a valid thing from an employee point of view?
1: Yeah. So, purely speaking as an employer advocate, um, I love it when my businesses, business clients kind of have as much info as possible. So, definitely love it when employees come forward and say that they'll be willing to take a redundancy because then um, the employer doesn't have to necessarily say yes to that, but it's good for them to know that that's an option because they might be going through at the moment, they're thinking, you know, which position should I make redundant, which one should I not? I always like it when businesses have as much info as possible. If I was to put my kind of uh, employee hat on, which I do very very rarely. But if I just, again, to look out for the employee side, I just want to be confident that you could get another job as part of that career change because redundancy pay isn't always um, applicable. So, there are exemptions. So, if you've got 14 or less employees, then you won't get redundancy pay. If you've been working less than 12 months, you won't get redundancy pay unless you're kind of working with the building construction space. So yeah, I'd just be kind of conscious both sides should be fully aware of, I guess, what the consequences are of going through a particular course of action. But yeah, I absolutely love it when employees are kind of open about what they're after because then the business can just make a decision. Um, based on that.
0: Yeah, because like we've all got, you know, uncles and grandparents that I work for Telstra for 35 years or 40 years and they made me redundant and I got 200 grand, like that just doesn't happen anymore. So, you know, if you <laughs> work, if you worked at Bunnings for 12 years and you want a redundancy, yeah, sure, you might get six weeks of pay, you know what I mean? Like it's, so I think it's got to be clear that it's not the bad old days anymore.
1: Yeah, exactly. And um, yeah, I had a an uncle that worked for a newspaper business and then got like 18 months redundancy pay or something ridiculous and yeah there are still obviously areas that get large redundancies but for nearly all Australians um, there isn't that entitlement so just being mindful about what is actually you're going to get in your back pocket would be a good move. I'd also probably flag too that the JobKeeper payments that are coming in, so the scheme that's um, just been announced and legislation pushed through, um, you do technically need to be on an employer's book. So, if you've resigned, then those subsidy payments won't come to you. So, it's just something to consider from an employer and an employee side. If you think the JobKeeper will help you, um, you first need to be eligible as a business, then need to be eligible as an employee. And that piece around the employees, you still need to be actually on their books. You still need to be employed.
0: Yeah. So, just on the JobKeeper, because, you know, there's a difference between the black and white legislation versus ScoMo's announcement. Like, there always is with government announcements. He was saying, oh, businesses, if you've let someone off, you know, call them back up and get them back and apply for JobKeeper. Is that a bit of a stretch of the actual legislation that's hit the ground?
1: Um, it's still possible. So, that's, that situation is definitely fine. So, you know, it's a, not to use like an American term, but it's like a free country and that businesses can employ employees if if they want to. Employees can join in businesses if they both agree. So, yeah, definitely if you've been let go after 1st of March, then yeah, for sure, you could reach out to your old employer and ask them if they want to put you back on the books so you get job keeper. The only thing and, and I Totally get your point. And where the reality sets in is if I'm a business owner, you know, why would I want to re engage that person if I already would was- got them out of my books to then give them job keeper payments. You'd want to be in a particular, you'd want a relationship with that business owner for that to be realistic because a business owner might just say, well, actually, no, you know, I'm happy with you being out of the business at the moment. Why would I bring you back and then, you know, have to negotiate for you to then leave afterwards?
4: So, Andrew, we had a question from Louise, one of our listeners on our Instagram. She submitted asking... If her employer could reduce her salary or her hours in order to retain her, what's your thoughts around
1: that? So the the really quick answer is no. So I would say 95% of times you can't actually force an employee to reduce their hours or reduce their pay. The reason being is that it's just part of your contract. So generally you have a contract that sets out certain terms about hours and pay, Um, and under Australian employment law you just can't force someone to change that. What they call like unilaterally. So by one side, um, you need to get their agreement. So, for those 95% of cases, the employer, you know, the business owner would actually have to go to the employer and say, you know, these are all the reasons that we're having difficulty with cash flow, you know, with COVID 19 coming in, it's really tough. We're looking to kind of get reductions in hours and pay. Can you sign this or agree to this? And then we'll implement this as of this date. The 5%, the caveat to that is that they just change a few different one awards to give the ability now to change hours and pay to cater to COVID. So, I'd really recommend if you're a small business, if you're a business owner, sorry, you're an employee to actually just look at what award impacts you, um, if any. And then all you do is you search on Google for that award, you control F, look for COVID. If the award has something or it has one of these changes, then it'll pop up. And you can see that there's actually a process where you can consult with employees and then you can force them to change. But I'd just be really mindful that it doesn't impact everyone. So, I'd really recommend you kind of do that Google search, control F to find that COVID-19 part of it before you kind of go through with that force.
4: And that's really helpful, Andrew, just in terms of, I guess that next step is, so say an employer asks you, ask their employee, we want to reduce hours. We don't have the cash flow. So we're going to move you from five days to four days. I guess the next step comes into it of, okay, we can't unilaterally force someone to change their contract, but we need to be able to have a healthy employment relationship. If an employee comes back and says, or well, no, and just outright refuses. What do you see in terms of that dynamic of the employment relationship? How does that impact it and and what yeah, I'm just keen for your advice on that for an employee. How could they best navigate that?
1: Yeah, for sure and it's a really good point um, because again, kind of coming back to the original um, discussion about this being like a relationship between two people and often this is kind of what it boils down to. If you have one side that's trying to be really transparent, trying to show that there are really genuine reasons why they need to take certain action and then you as an employee was to just flat out refuse, um, you're likely going to really... Breach that relationship and that level of trust. Um, and that obviously won't happen in all situations, but that's just what we're seeing. A lot of my clients are getting really um, upset uh, at employees that are not treating this seriously and purely, you know, not engaging in the discussion. They're purely just saying no. And I actually don't think it helps the employees. So if they go in with that kind of immediate no defensive reaction, the reality is that this. The business owner might have to then look at you know, potential redundancies, or if they're working in a particular sector, they might be able to force them to make that change. So, I just be really, um, what I'm kind of recommending to both sides of the fence is just to be really transparent in terms of the discussions, really try to engage and understand where each other's coming from. Ask questions as the employee, get some more understanding. A lot of the times, we're seeing businesses not just target, say, one employee, but they're targeting, say, 80% of their employees or 100% of employees to try to get a kind of uniform approach. So yeah, I guess I'd really recommend both sides to see that both sides are panicking, to try to be compassionate, be empathetic, because as you correctly say, you know, we're gonna see relationships burn down because of this. So the more reasonable we can be on both sides, I think the more likely we are to kind of still be together by the end of this, I guess. It's like that old kind of like a good marriage is based on good communication. There's a lot of similarities between kind of employee, employers in this case.
0: Except they don't share beds.
1: You'd hope not,
0: yeah. <laughs> Unless you're trying to sleep your way to the top somehow. I don't know. <laughs> now, we'll, we'll just move straight along. Um, just following that, there was another question from um, Jana. She was stood down. The boss couldn't afford to pay her till JobKeeper in May. She says, now what? Is it true that she just has to have a staycation and when JobKeeper comes in, she will get back pay because JobKeeper will pay the employer from 1st of March?
1: Yeah. So, it's definitely right that if the business becomes eligible, so they register for JobKeeper, the, the government then says, yes, cool, you're eligible. That's fine. And then they say that she's eligible. Um, yeah, cool, you can get the payments. Then for sure, they'll backdate from 1st of March. The issue though is likely the business owner has, um, if they're not doing stand down correctly, then they might have actually breached their obligations. So, you can't just not pay someone because you can't afford it. That's just, you know, Technically, that's just an underpayment claim waiting to happen.
0: And there was another question here from Belinda. I was stood down without pay one and a half weeks ago. Should I have received a separation letter? So, is it true best practice? you should get something in writing from your employer whenever there's an event that changes.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And that's not just for the employer either. This should be kind of standard practice for all employers too. Um, Anytime that you change any sort of condition um, or work practice, it should be in writing Um, so that it's really clear exactly when you made that direction. Um, We hate it. Like we have clients, uh, business clients that come to us and they say, yeah, I made a verbal direction two weeks ago and there's now a dispute over me saying that. So, just avoid that Completely, always have it in writing. And as an employee, if you don't get that in writing, then you can just request it. Um, it may be that the business just didn't get around to it in time. Doesn't mean they're trying to do anything dodgy either. It's just a lot of the time we're dealing with quite, you know, potentially stressed and busy companies. So just trying to have that maybe a little bit of understanding and just ask for it.
0: Speaking of dodgy employers, can we pretend I'm a lawyer for just one moment and talk to you, Andrew, as a colleague of mine, because I'm also a lawyer? Um, a person wrote in, I'll keep their name silent. It said is it illegal for an employer to own and I'll try not to laugh while I read it. <laughs> is it illegal for an employer to only pay for billable hours if you are a permanent employee. Now I'll give everyone an example. This could be a beauty salon. And you're a full-time employee, you could get 60 grand a year and you might your billable hours are not the 2 hours that you're cleaning the salon after or prepping or checking stock, right? So this person's the employer He's trying to say, well, we only had one customer today paying the $70 for the hour. We're only going to pay you the $70 per hour. Talking to a colleague, Andrew, is I think that's illegal. What are your thoughts?
1: Uh, I would agree. Um, <laughs> I really just know everyone. everyone. <laughs> <laughs> and if you were a colleague, that's exactly what I would say. You know, I, I just agree. Let's move on. Yeah. Sort of thing. Very <laughs> that's formal. right. Yeah. Um, that's how lawyers talk to one another. Yeah. Um, (laughs) yeah you would just say that that's a dodgy client and you shouldn't be acting for them would be one of the ones, but we, we hear that all the time. You know, can we direct people to come 15 minutes before their shift start to set up, and then only pay them for when they start classes? If they're you know a gymming instructor or um you know they run classes for kids, and the answer is always no. Anytime you direct someone to be anywhere as an employer, you need to pay them. And COVID hasn't created this kind of new exemption for that. Um, but it's not it's not actually that crazy that question. So I've heard friends that are working for big big companies that are doing some really creative things about reducing their kind of liabilities. For annual leave in terms of there was one company I've got a friend that works at who will just remain nameless but they've been saying that they're, they're doing a shutdown but you can still come to work and not need to take annual leave if you've got billable hours that you can do so they're saying like you know you've got a week of annual leave but if you've got billable work to do you can come in and do that and then not have to take annual leave I think employment law
0: it's it's got to be yes or no there's no halfway because it there's just it doesn't cater for that you're either working or you're not and if you're not working you're still down or you're sick or you're on annual leave or you're on long service leave.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Oh, that's that's how we recommend it's treated, but you just there are a lot of companies out there trying to blow the line.
4: So how does it work then Andrew in terms of like obviously we're seeing lots of the big four organizations move to move their staff to four-day work weeks. And, and so, what does that
1: look like? Um, so, if they're doing it properly, then they should be just getting a piece of paper that says that they both agree to that reduction and then it just varies their contract. So, their contract will say five days. There's a piece of paper that sits behind it that you know the employee sign that says now it's four days. And then it's a question of whether it has a time period or not on it. So, some people will say, you agree to move down for four days for the next three months and then we'll revisit it. Um, other people just make that a permanent switch.
0: So, basically what you're saying is as long as both parties agree and it's not breaking the law, it's okay. But the issue is where the last question was, oh, we're only going to pay you a billable hour, which is one hour a week at the moment because we've got no clients. If the employee doesn't agree to that, it's a law that's been broken. However, if they said, hey, we can only afford to pay you literally four hours a week, Do you agree? And if the employee said, yes, I agree, and they signed upon it, that's okay. Is that what we're saying?
1: Uh, Only if they're actually only doing four hours. So, an employee can't contract out of minimum entitlement. So, if they're doing eight hours, for example, and the employer says, hey, do you agree to only get paid for four? And the employee says yes and they sign it it sounds above board because everyone's happy but actually that's still illegal so it always happened you know the 7-11 cases were kind of renowned for employees agreeing to give back cash after they were paid that was found to be illegal even though both parties agreed so you just anytime people aren't getting paid for the hours they're doing that's an immediate dodgy mark um, it's unlawful uh, the only time you can kind of agree and for it to all be okay is if you're only paying them for the hours that they're working. So you're either reducing their hours or reducing their pay Um, if you reduce their pay, and this is a question we get all the time, you know, can we just reduce it by 80%? The answer is generally no, unless you pay them so much above their minimum entitlements that 20% still covers them. Most people, you know, 20% um, won't cover them, so they're not able to do that. So, yeah, there are some things you can agree and some things you can't.
0: So, just to be clear, employment law is not state-based, it's national.
1: Yeah, so, and that's what makes it really easy for me as an employment lawyer because each state still has the same main kind of law to it. The only thing that changes are long service leave is different state to state. Um, Workers' comp is different state to state. Um, So, workers' compensation, if you get injured at work, that's a slightly different scheme per state. But generally, uh, employment law is the same in every state in Australia.
0: Andrew, I've got a hypothetical question. And to me, I think it sounds like there's wholesale laws being broken dictate what you can do when you're on annual leave and withhold money from you if you... Like they could say, oh, while you're on annual leave, you're not allowed to visit Sydney because we're based in Perth and we don't want people in Sydney. Like surely that's after the fact in your private life, what you do with annual leave.
1: Yeah. So, that's that's totally right. So, an employer can't control what you do on annual leave. Um, they can only control if they allow you to take it. An employee can request take annual leave. The employee can accept or reject it. If they reject it, it needs to be on reasonable business grounds. Um, so, they might say, you know, a hospital might say validly, we can't, let anyone go on annual leave for three months because we have we're so short staffed, the service needs are so great that um, it's unlikely that we'll ever be able to say yes for this period. You can still apply and they'll still technically need to give you a reason why not. But that is okay to have kind of a, a period where you can't, you won't allow annual leave. But once you've allowed annual leave, you can't direct people where they can or can't go. Do
0: you think that sounded like a soft shakedown to the staff? Like, because obviously the hospital didn't want the staff getting COVID-19. So, do you think it was just more of a soft shakedown?
1: Um, Potentially. Um, The the reason uh, we had a lot of clients ask that question around, can we direct people not to travel overseas, um, especially early um, stage COVID-19? And our answer was always no, but you can and should have a conversation with them before they take annual leave to let them know, you know, what could potentially be the consequences if they do go overseas and they come back and then the government directs them to stay at home for two weeks under quarantine, or um, there are different. You know, they're not able to come back to Australia because there's been a ban, and they're stuck overseas. Then the consequence of that could be potentially that they're not able to come to work. They may not be able to work from home, and so they may not be able to be paid for that period. So. We were always really keen on employers kind of being super transparent with employees to say that, look, you can definitely go overseas, that's your right, but just so you know, there might be consequences if, you know, the government directions come in or something changes that might mean that we actually can't pay you because we can't use you.
0: Yeah, and that might have been the, I might have got my wires crossed, maybe it was if you do go overseas and you come back and you're in quarantine for 14 days, we're not paying you.
1: Yeah, and that can, that can definitely still be legal. Um, sure. It's uh, If you say, for example, you're a you know, programmer um, and you can work from home, then in that situation, then you would need to still pay them because they can still do their job at home. But if you're like a nurse or a doctor, for example, and you can't do telehealth sort of appointments, um, then you may not get paid.
4: Speaking of working from home, we had a question from Bron through the Instagram And she's asked, can your boss force you to go into the office if you can and have been working from home without any issues? What's your thought if something's been um, in practice and then we've changed tact? How does that work?
1: Um, So, yeah, working from home is a really interesting one um, and especially – making people come to the office. So, if you're going to break it down a little bit, all requests to work from home need to be made by the employee and then they need to be accepted by the employer. So, it isn't something that an employee can just say, I think I should be working from home because I can do it. Um, and then they just work from home. Um, technically, the employee can direct them to be in the office. Um, and we're getting that a lot of the moment with businesses that might be able to function 80% to capacity with working from home, but then 20% of the job, they still need people to come in. And in that situation, it may be totally reasonable for them to require that 20% of the time for them to be in the office. But then at the same vein, they're required to also comply with ohS and uh, obligations, which is to make sure that, you know, the 20% that they are in the office, that they're safe um, and that they've taken all reasonable precautions. So, you know, there might be, I've heard people say that, you know, one person of each team could be in the office at each time, but you can't have more than one person because social distancing might be really tough. Um, You know, we'll make hand sanitizer readily available. The offices will be cleaned each day, um, Some really simple things you could do to make sure that it is safe for people to come in and that is the right of the employer. We can direct people to come in if it is safe and the only time employees can work from home is when we approve it as the employer.
4: So we had another question Andrew sent through from Joe. So he asks, if someone has been stood down, can they be in breach of their contract if they undertake work during this period?
1: Sure. So, the and it's a really good question. The The short answer is potentially. So, they need to look at their contract and see if there's anything in there that says that they can't work um, in another job without permission. Um, we do see maybe like half contracts will say that. There'll be something that says, you know, it might be in the fine print. You must seek your express approval before you work somewhere else. So, I would recommend looking at that. There's also new protections in place over the last kind of 48 hours to enable people to work for other jobs if they've been stood down without pay and the employer can't unreasonably refuse that. So for example, if they're working from home, if they've been stood down without pay and they found another part-time job to kind of give them some cash. Generally, in those circumstances, they can then go to their employer, ask um, if that's okay. And again, it's all about being transparent with your employer, making sure everyone's on the same page. Then it's just a discussion. If it's unreasonable for them to say no, then you might still be able to do it anyway. But I'd still recommend you have that chat, look at your contract um, and then see kind of do it that way. uh, Because if you do it without consent or you don't go through it the proper way, then there could be a risk that you breach your contract. Um, And I just hate for employees to kind of unknowingly Um, put their job at risk because they're kind of jumping ahead without kind of thinking everything through.
0: Yeah. There's a couple of questions on the consent thing. Uh, Sam asked, pay cuts. We haven't been asked if we can. We've just been told, can it be done? And then another one said, um, somebody had uh, an employer, they've basically forced a pay cut of 20% on all employees?
1: Yeah, so technically, no. Um, they should always be getting your agreement to those cuts. Um, I just recommend, as a caveat, to just Google search your award again and see if there's the new changes to your award that do allow potential changes to hours and wages to see if they've gone through that correctly. But generally, the answer is always no. They need your permission to do so. Um, you may consider, you know, I've got some friends that have been in companies that the exact same thing happened and they. Say is this a, is this allowed? And then my answer is no. But you just still want to be conscious about how you raise that with your employer, because again, kind of when I'm thinking purely for my friend who's employed, I don't want them to lose their job by you know bringing it up in the wrong way or kind of turning noses the wrong way. Um, There's still a kind of a good way to bring it up if you want to. Um, and I'm more concerned about their kind of long-term employment um, than say a 20% cut for a short time. So, the, sure. technically, the answer would normally be no, but again, there are more things you kind of need to think about.
4: And I think on that, Andrew, I just keep thinking back to this is a temporary issue. It won't be forever. Whatever an employee does now will impact their long-term employment. And so, I just keep coming back to agree to do what's best for both parties together. And as you do that in the right way, it's going to have the best outcome for the employee and for the employer.
1: Yeah, definitely. And it's the communication part that some businesses struggle with. So, they might think that internally, but then they communicate it really poorly. And they just come across with, we're cutting at 20%, we're trying to survive. It's all kind of battle stations. And they don't actually talk to their employees about it. Um, I think that's exactly right. You know, you lose that kind of two-way, we're in this together. Um, and that's a real shame because it, it can be very persuasive. You know, if, you can, if you're if you able to convince employees that you are doing it out of their best interests and yours, you're way more likely to get buy-in, you're way more likely to get them to still be with you long-term. What we're finding with some of the bad businesses in this space that are doing it poorly, that aren't communicating... They might um, keep it for. They might keep an employee for this period because they can't find other work. And then, as soon as jobs start opening up, they'll ditch them um, within two seconds because they lost so much trust and faith during that period.
0: Yeah, just in the short time we've got left, I've just got two kind of questions uh, that we haven't covered. Uh, There are a lot of listeners who might be a part of a union. Is it fair to say in these scenarios, as the first case? go back to your union representative and just see what your union is doing for you in these times?
1: Yeah, definitely. I think, um, well, you know, and again, normally being on the side that opposes unions, um, they can still serve a great function. Um, And if you're paying fees to be a union member, then you should be definitely trying to push to see what they're doing with your fees. But I would still kind of, if you've got an issue with your employer, obviously, my biggest recommendation is to go to your employer directly. Um, You don't sometimes want to inflame the situation by immediately bringing in union reps. That's kind of my opinion. Um, There'll be some people that think the exact opposite and very aggressively so.
4: From the HR hat, I'm I'm with you on that.
1: There are just as in the same way that there are some interesting characters in businesses, there are some interesting characters in unions. So, if you've got a good relationship with a business that employs you, then definitely go to them first. But yeah, for sure, the, the unions are releasing a lot of guidance at the moment, pushing forward what they're doing. A lot of the JobKeeper um, legislation has been pushed through with consultation with a lot of unions. So, there is definitely a lot of union activity. But yeah, again, I'd just really push that first go to your employer route.
0: Yeah. So, other than you two are filthy capitalist pigs that don't like unions, we'll, we'll oversee that. <laughs> One last kind of question and it's an example. My employee who edits the audio of these podcasts and he won't be editing this one because he'll be on Long Weekend and I'll do it for Tuesday. He's not under an award and I pay him above the minimum wage and it's actually Shell's brother, weirdly or not. It's a bit incestuous but all good. But um, for those who aren't covered under an award, I still can't break the law with my employee, can I? That's nice. a loaded question. <laughs>
1: No, and yeah, (laughs) am I just giving individual legal advice right now? (laughs) Yes, because I've
0: got another question for you.
1: Yeah, so um, even if you're not covered by an award, there's still this thing called the National Employment Standards that cover all employees. So your editor, for example, still has these protections. So you still are restricted a lot in what you can do as an employer. There are just not as many benefits. So if they're award-free, then they still get the national minimum wage. They still get annual leave, personal leave, all of the things we always consider employees get. There are just particular small things that um, he, they won't get, for example. So, that's just the only difference.
4: So, Glenn now crossed off his list. Okay, I have to follow the law for my employees.
0: <laughs> hey, I'm a good boss. Uh, may have broken the law unknowingly in the past, but no. <laughs> well, actually on that, like when I had my business and it's standard practice in a lot of offices, they just were like, oh, over Christmas and New Year, forced annual leave, the office shuts for two weeks. Like, I did that for the last five years. Oh, more.
1: Yeah, for sure. And that's normally okay, actually. Um, Oh, sweet. As long as you give reasonable notice. Um, Yes.
0: It was in the contracts before they even started working.
1: Yeah, for sure. And then that's even easier. Um, If you're covered by an award, there'll generally be kind of like an annual shutdown provision, but there are really limitations on it. So, generally, it's like only you can only do it once or twice during the year. Um, Sometimes, they'll even say it needs to be around that Christmas, New Year period. You need to sometimes give like 60 days notice before you can even do it. So, yeah, there are definitely limitations on it, but if it's done properly, then you can do it legally and
0: So, we had some technical troubles and the conversation ended abruptly. We connected back and it was pretty late so we were pretty tired. I put the rest of the conversation up in the after party If you want to listen to what we finished with, uh, there's nothing really material that you would miss. However, it got a little bit loose when I was comparing myself to Mike Ross and Shell as Rachel from Suits. Now, I just want to say thank you so much, Andrew, for jumping on and having a good chat with Shell and I. And on behalf of the M3 community, thank you so much. It was very valuable. Thanks for listening, guys. I'll catch you soon. Bye. All right, Stu, you are up. Stu is our community member of the week. We didn't actually well, find out where Stu? he Stu. on your Stu. He's a 30 year old winemaker now. Is that somebody you could be friends with, Shell?
3: I certainly could be friends with oh,
0: Stu. A friend. Elliot, who's a winemaker.
3: I know. Crazy. Yeah.
0: They're so good friends to
3: have, the old winemakers.
0: I know. And remember we had that Christmas party in my house and we got um, Elliot to do the champagne with the the knife or the sword or whatever he had.
4: It's such a it's such a niche gift and skill set.
0: Yeah. And that I that knife be,
4: knife champagne
3: thing.
0: Yeah. And I probably should be clear that he's not a winemaker, Elliot. He's a similar
3: yeah.
0: So Stu's financial goal is to save for a house deposit in the next two years. And how's he going about that goal shell?
4: So he moved in with the in-laws to save cash, and he's also started a, hu- a I was going to say a hide hustle. <laughs> he started a side hustle, and he's uh, making his own small wine brand, liquor license pending, which is awesome.
0: Awesome. And the silliest money mistake Stu's made was he bought a how- um, he bought a Ute with a dealership repayment plan. After a year, he sold it back to the dealership and downsized to a hatchback. So, he probably took a bath there on the car.
4: Yeah. And, you know, he probably ended up with a Hyundai Getz.
0: Wouldn't know, Shell. You you used to be a Getzer, didn't you?
3: <laughs> yeah. Until I had a car accident and wrote it off.
0: Yeah. Yeah. So, Good hey, times. That was, a, that was a cool chat with Andrew, wasn't it?
3: Yeah. What a legend. Love Andrew. He's a good guy.
0: So, Shell, you guys are um, you are going to get some topical stuff coming up on My Millennial Career?
4: Yeah. We do have a few things coming up, Glenn. We're actually going to be looking at what do you do if your employment has ended or you've been uh, laid off or you need to start thinking about a career transition. So, we're going to be focusing on that in the coming weeks.
0: Awesome. Awesome. Well, thanks for taking John's space today and talking employment law with Andrew. I had a lot of fun and watch back John. You might lose your job soon.
3: (laughs) Thanks
2: for having me, Glenn. Good to hang out. All
3: right. Bye-bye. Bye.
2: If you're after personal financial advice, This podcast is not for you, but if you do want a financial advisor or mortgage broker to talk with about your own personal situation, head over to sortyourmoneyout.com, click get help, and we'll put you in touch with one of our trusted professionals. If you're looking for a super fund that puts its members' interests above all else, choose a super performer, Sun Super. With low fees, strong investment returns, and great member services, Sun Super is Super Ratings 2020 Fund of the Year. And has also been awarded by money magazine canstar and finder find out more about sun super at sunsuper.com.au forward slash choose you can join sun super online in under five minutes many people do not realize that slavery still exists in the world today that's why my millennial money supports a21 we want to highlight a21 as they work to abolish slavery and human trafficking all across the world If you want to support A21, visit a21.org.au for more information. If you're listening to this podcast, there's a high chance you have disposable income. Glenn has a mandate to get everyone giving, saving and spending in that order. Now, we want to encourage you to be generous with your money, but choosing an effective charity can be difficult. An amazing resource you can use is thelifeyoucansave.org.au. You can donate to them and they'll distribute your donation to a variety of life-saving and life-changing charities around the world with a focus on eliminating extreme poverty. For more information, visit thelifeyoucansave.org.au. Thanks to Jess Knauss, executive producer, Laura from La La Social Club, and me, Asha. Uh, Anyway, make sure you stay connected via Instagram, our free Facebook group, or if you want to turn it up a notch and be on the inside of the show, become a member of M3 Private. For further information about what's going on, check out the links in the show notes.
0: We just had a dropout there, but we're back and we'll uh, we'll wrap it up. And I just want to finish because it's a practical example. And again, the reason I do this podcast is so I can find out information for myself. Now, I employ my editor who we've just talked about uh as a an editor and a junior studio hand or something like that i forget the exact wording now we're moving studios can i get him to help
1: move stuff is this just in relation to covid-19 or is this just normally normally <laughs> No, um, well, technically you can only ask. <laughs> technically, you can only ask them to do tasks that are part of their job description or part of their role. Um, so you can't just, you know, say, "Hey, I engage you to be a, an editor. Can you help me move on the weekend or something?" Um, or help me move studio in hours. In hours, um, we well, can definitely ask it. He just might have grounds to say, um, "Well, that's not part of my PD. That's really weird. Like, I'm not a manual labourer, lifter. I'm, you know." five foot tall and I've got scrawny arms or something you know (laughs) he helped that was good and then the other
0: thing by law because it's I just care what's legal or not by law next week can I get him to help paint the studio
1: sure so I would say no without his consent
0: okay so I can just ask him I'm like hey if you would like to stop uh, editing for a couple of days would you like to throw a bit of paint around yeah. Okay. I might even just eat. Yeah. Sweet. Sweet. But 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 I guess I I use this example because in this time we know that we've heard stories of people being employed for something, and then in this time you know if someone's on the books and I oh, will still pay you, but it's a small business and there's not many customers. Oh, just go and mow my lawn. Like, just go and pick up my dry cleaning. Like, how much latitude by law? do employers have, even with consent?
1: Um, so with consent, it's generally fair game. Um, so long as you're complying with your OH&S obligations. So if you, you know, you've got an editor and you say, hey, can you do the tiling on my roof? And you don't have the ladder set up correctly, then obviously that's a no-go because you're putting them at risk. Um, but if it's just, hey, would you mind doing some, you know, marketing material or, you know, doing something else that's within, you know, the realms of being reasonable, then with their consent, that's fine. Um, you know, technically, if you change their role completely, um, you may end up needing to pay them under. a different award or their pay rate may change in terms of their minimums, which you'll need to think about. Um, But that's with their consent. Without their consent, two weeks ago, I would have said that you just can't do it. Um, The last week or so, with changes to the modern awards and changes to um, the JobKeeper legislation, there is actually the ability now to direct employees covered by that um, to... uh, Or one of the awards that's been impacted and it pretty much does allow you the ability to kind of direct employees to do other related tasks that are still reasonable. So, there is more scope now to direct employees to do things outside of their PD um, but there's still limitations on that. So, you can't, for example, require someone who's in your kitchen to then kind of be running around with newspaper flyers or something as a totally different part of the business. Um, It still needs to be reasonable and part of their normal kind of skill set.
0: Yeah, so I couldn't say to Nate, the editor, hey, it's a a quiet editing week. Uh, I need some landscape gardening done at my ranch. Can you move some bricks for me and spend all day out working? Because that's actually not reasonable. If he's comfortable to mow my lawn every second week.
1: As long as you pay him and he agrees, fine. For sure. I would have thought potentially you could get a cheaper mower than you can an editor. But, you know.
0: Yeah. Well, I don't know. My guy's pretty expensive. Um,
3: (laughs) your lawnmower
0: yeah
4: right there you go I think all of this conversation comes back to just have a good conversation with your employer talk it through have the discussion don't force anyone to do anything
0: yeah and I think (laughs) me as an employer you need to be you just need to respect people Number one, don't treat people like dirt and like you own them. I never tell people that, oh, so-and-so, he works for me. I always say so-and-so is one of my team members. Like just in the language and, you know, take people with you. You can't push a rope, bring them along. Like just be a nice human.
1: Yeah, exactly. Oh, the amount of advice that I give that isn't legal, it's just be a normal human being um, is crazy. (laughs) Um, Because, you know, lawyers get paid quite a lot for their advice and half of what I give is just to be a normal person. Um, So, yeah, (laughs) definitely buy that approach.
0: Well, Andrew, thank you so much.
3: I think, Andrew, you're like the Harvey Specter of employment law. Like, you're the go-to guy and I feel like on this conversation – Glenn and I now feel like we're Mike Ross, you know. We don't have a law degree, but we wish we did.
0: I'm, I'm glad. Mike Ross. You're Rachel.
3: <laughs> oh, thank you. Well that's good. She eventually Wait. gets qualified. And <laughs> eventually- except <laughs> except I, I have a husband and we're not in a relationship.
0: Yeah, that's weird. <laughs>
4: <laughs> Things are getting weird.